This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. There has been a concern for some time about the nomination of Scott Pruitt to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, and now that he has been confirmed, those concerns have turned to his connections to the oil and gas industry. Earlier this week, thousands of pages of emails were made public that show links for the former Attorney General of Oklahoma. Pruitt had been, has been seen as someone who has been vehemently opposed to the path of the EPA in the past. To take a look at these latest developments, we're joined here in studio by Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, and also Faculty Director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. And we're also joined by Victor Flatt, who's a professor in environmental law at the University of North Carolina. He's also co-director of the Center for Climate, Energy, Environment, and Economics, and co-director of the North Carolina Coastal Resources Law, Planning, and Policy Center. Great to see you again, Eric. Thanks. Good to be here again. And great to have you on the phone as well, Victor. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Victor, uh, I guess I'll start with you with your reaction to when these emails started to filter out earlier this week. Well, I I wasn't surprised. Uh, I guess that's the first thing I would say. Um, The New York Times had actually done a story a few years ago that, you know, recognized that there were these emails, although they didn't have the, the necessary substance. And I'm also not surprised because, I mean, Scott Pruitt, first and foremost, is a political animal. He was in a political position. Um, so the fact that he has these relations with companies um, that he may or may not be regulating, again, was was not a particular surprise to me. Eric? Yeah, I totally agree with uh, Professor Flatt on this. Uh, we knew that there were significant connections. Uh, there was a delay that the uh, Democrats and the Senate wanted to have in order to allow for the full range of these emails to be released uh, under a uh, under a um, lawsuit, and then, but that was rejected last week. But we, I think it, it's true. We basically knew the story already, and uh, from other information, and this, these, uh, these emails just confirm the general impression, which is that there was a lot of back and forth and cozy deals, really between. Um, uh, between lobbyists and what uh, what Attorney General Pruitt was uh, doing, so you had virtually you, know, people, you, you have memos uh, that were sent say, "Hey, please send this to the EPA because it will look more credible to the EPA if it comes from a state." But it's essentially written by uh, fossil fuel lobbyists and right. sent over to the Attorney General's office. Make a few changes, put it on your letterhead, send it over. But we. We sort of, we knew that that was happening, and that was uh, one of the reasons there was very strong opposition, unified opposition against this uh, appointment by the, by the uh, environmentalist community. Uh, and, uh, and at the end of the day, they didn't win. There were two Democrats that went the, over to the other side on the final vote, and one Republican voted against, and that was enough to confirm. So what do you think happens now? I mean, because these are obviously in the uh, in the consumption of the public, and from what I understand, there are a few more emails that will come in the next few days. Uh, will there be some sort of investigation at the congressional level? Will there be some call for one uh, in the near future? No, I don't. I, there are other things that you know, one, one probably other priorities for Congress to investigate. Yeah. There've been, and I think the pressure will be higher on issues like the Russian connection and that yeah. sort of thing rather than rather than this. And and it's basically a 
uh, Republican-controlled uh, Congress, and so they don't have an interest. This is actually pushing forward the agenda, and the agenda is a, is a rather radical one from the point of view of environmental regulation. I don't think we're going to – I think this is the – Going to be the most conservative in, the, in this, in a sense, in the sense of uh, well, conservative, most anti-regulatory yeah. EPA that we have had probably in history, and 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 uh, the signals were clear uh, in terms of the transition team. You had a, uh, you had a anti-climate transition team. Uh, President Trump indicated some uh, ch- uh, possible. Um, possible malleability on this issue when he talked to the New York Times and said there might be some connectivity between human action and climate change. But that turns out to be you really do with you need with with President Trump to look at what he actually does, not necessarily what he's saying to different groups. And he's falling through basically on his campaign promises. And that is to uh, cut back environmental regulation extremely severely to to get out of the business at the federal level of uh, greenhouse gas uh, regulation, to make it easier to on fracking, uh, to uh, to push through the pipelines. Yeah. So it's a very pro fossil fuel uh, uh, idea uh, or fossil fuel fossil fuel friendly agenda. And um, I think that it's we're we're heading. The result is that you're heading into a battle. I and mean, essentially, one way to put it is that I think that. President Trump has declared war on the environment, right. and so uh, and he has the backing of the of a uh, of a Republican Congress right now, and so the battle will go back. It will go into the states levels, and then you're also going to have a energizing of the environmentalist nonprofit community, and and there will be protest attempt to block pipelines, et cetera. Victor, as this was all playing out in the potential nomination, well, I should say the nomination and potential uh, uh, for him to come in as administrator, which is now played out, outside of this type of, uh, of area, where were your greatest concerns where Scott Pruitt is con- it was really coming in? Um, well, he you know is a classic anti-regulation person. Um, he led the, a lot of the legal fights against most of the major rules the EPA has put out in the last four years. Um, and again, a very aggressive um, stance against the EPA, claiming mm-hmm. that EPA was interfering with the state's rights, that the regulation should be left to the state's. Um, you know, opposing anything that might have some cost for the industry, essentially opposing anything that the fossil fuel industry opposed. Um, and of course, you, one way you can look at that is, well, he's from Oklahoma. He was elected in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is incredibly dependent on fossil fuels, so yeah. no surprises there. Um, the other way is uh, he seems to have some, you know, uh, uh, be a true believer, uh, has, have some real zeal for the anti-regulatory agenda. And, and there's also, the, I think, uh, a little bit of the greater issue in this, and, and you alluded to it a, a little bit ago, Victor, is the fact that in the influence that lobbyists have with politicians, whether it be at the state level, the federal level, whatever it may be, this is just kind of another example of how that relationship is playing out, and obviously in a negative path, in this case, being uh, linked to the environment. Well, that's right. Um, I think this is gets to a bigger question about what kinds of ethics rules one has. Um, and Oklahoma at the state level has different ones than we have at the federal level. Um, and if you don't have very strict rules about 
um, public meetings, uh, how much, if money can be given for somebody that's working on an issue before you, um, or anything of that nature, you're, you're going to see this play out in a political way in the political arena. Do you think that this will have any impact on him as the administrator of the EPA then? I think it might. Um, again, as Professor Orr said, we don't know everything that's in every email at this point. Right. No, no big surprise that industry was, was writing uh, or, or drafting, I guess, some of the comments. Um, that has happened before, although this is a fairly extreme example. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the biggest impact may be on the morale of the um, staff, the uh, career staff at the agency, which was already very low and already very distrustful of Scott Pruitt. And I think this will just give them more ammunition to be distrustful of Scott Pruitt. Now, one could argue it doesn't really matter because he doesn't want them to be doing anything or working anyway. Um, but I think that if you don't have any cooperation or some kind of relationship with the career staff you're working with, it's going to make your job more difficult. Eric? Well, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there's 15,000 EPA employees, and I believe 773 of them actually went out of their way to sign uh, an op- you know, sign a statement opposing this uh, this nomination, which is fairly rare. Um, uh, and I think, uh, I think though that the power structure is going to be. I mean, the, you you can't do a lot for with it without the EPA administrators um, signing off on something. So you're going to have a halting of uh, regulations. Uh, you're, and, and I think that he will have the authority and the power to withdraw from various kinds of. Um, commitments that the Obama administration made. You know, just one example would be the Chesapeake Bay, which is around in our neighborhood. Yeah. Um, you basically need there a coalition of different states to solve a very difficult problem because yep. Chesapeake Bay is being polluted. It's been a problem for decades. And, the, and, and so you're trying to solve the problem. And right now, it looks like uh, Delaware, Maryland, D.C. are kind of doing their part a little bit, but actually our state, Pennsylvania, is not yeah. really holding up our side of the bargain. And Which, so what you really need there is the EPA to come in and say, hey, Pennsylvania, you really have to do your part. But with this uh, with this approach of, well, all the states should do their own thing, right. it's difficult to see where that leverage is going to come from. Right. So, so it could be that you um, – yeah, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of what will happen, and, and this will be one other uh, one other thing that that I think will be predictable is that a lot of uh, Pruitt's vision will be more for a federalist approach, which means state regulation of the environment. That means that if you care about the environment, you have to start stepping up at the state level. Right. So if you want regulation, states are still free. We have a we mostly have a concurrent system of federal regulation, but also states still have jurisdiction here. And so I think you'll see a stepping up of, uh, at least in states that, you know, not in Oklahoma, right, but yeah. in states, uh, in other states where you have more of a balanced uh, political well, situation, you have states stepping up and, and, and trying to take the lead where EPA is not taking the lead, Victor, is, is retreating. Victor, how challenging does that potentially become, as, as Eric kind of laid out, where Chesapeake Bay is concerned, you, you've got what, four states, really, that, that are a piece to this process. Not a lot of people think Pennsylvania, but the, the watershed for Chesapeake Bay is, is in this state. So, I mean, that's, that's part, of the, part of the process as well. Uh, to be able to coordinate the same type of regulations in Pennsylvania and Delaware and Maryland and Virginia, that, that's got to be a challenging process. 
Well, it, it's, it's challenging in the best of terms, and Professor Orts is exactly correct that the EPA's role in coordinating among the states um, is an incredibly important one. Um, and and even, if, even if the states were good at doing their own environmental enforcement, even if all of them were, the EPA would still be needed to coordinate a lot of the interstate issues that move between these states. And in addition to the Chesapeake Bay, we have the cross-state air pollution rule, we have the impact of air pollution on national parks that the mm-hmm. EPA is, is trying to implement. And all of those require coordination and cooperation. And it's up until now, at least, it's taken EPA to really prod and push many of the states to get them involved and get them to do what they're supposed to do. Without that, it's, it's going to be really a lot of backsliding, even among so-called progressive states where interstate issues are concerned. And obviously there's a little bit of irony here in the fact that uh, Scott Pruitt, I guess, apparently had sued the EPA, what, about a dozen times or so? I think 17. 17 times, you know. I I mean, he is... It is is interesting, though, that he is now the person that is running this organization. Right. Well, the one one thing I wanted to add, going back to this earlier, that's going to be important about working with the staff. So, you know, the, the big story here is He's going to pull back from enforcement. He's going to pull back from any new rules or any new regulation or helping the states do anything, and that is going to take a terrible toll. On the other hand, there are a couple of these rules that are already have gone through the rulemaking process that the EPA can't – I mean, they can ignore them or not enforce them, but they can't just sign them away. So uh, the Clean Power Plan is one example, which is in court right now. Waters of the United States rule is another example, um, also in court right now. To get rid of those, they're going to have to go through the rulemaking process again um, in, in some form or fashion unless the courts get rid of it for them. And you do need some cooperation among your staff to be able to make that work. Eric? Yeah, I mean, that's that's correct. Uh, one thing you'll probably see is that there'll be an attempt not to enforce the regulations. And, right. of course, the executive's role is supposed to be, and this was, a, this was an argument against the confirmation, that you have to exec- you have to execute the laws. So right. Congress sets the laws, and then you your job is you execute them. So the idea that it's not some people might think, well, this guy doesn't like uh, EPA, we don't like the regulations, and he just won't enforce them. Well, he probably will try to uh, reduce enforcement, but then what you're going to get is you're going to get environmentalist groups and and maybe some other coalitions of states, et cetera, suing him to say. Look, you have to enforce the law. You're not enforcing sure. the law. Where is right. the regulation that you have uh, have to come forward with? Or if you attempt to reduce, take back regulation, there's also going to be a question of, uh, well, what's the cost-benefit analysis that you're doing on that? Because a lot of these regulations have gone through this process. It's clearly beneficial from an economic as well as an yep. environmental point of view. So yep. you can't just say, hey, I, I hate regulation and my fossil fuel uh, uh, buddies want me to re- withdraw it. it. You know, the system is not... Uh, going to work as easily that way. I, I want to make one other general comment here about uh, about the situation, and that is that it's. It, I think it's a little bit sad if you think about it in large terms. If you if you think in the history of the United States, one of the great uh, aspects of the uh, of of our situation in the United States is that we have relatively strong and effective environmental law. So if someone comes here from China, for example, and I have many students that do, they're sitting in my sitting in my class right uh, right this semester. One of the things that comes up is how much better it is here in Philadelphia or the cities of the United States than it is in Beijing or many of the cities in China which have terrible air pollution. Sure, so you look yeah. at why is that? Why do we have 
cl relatively clean water, relatively clean uh, air compared to many other countries in the world. It's the environmental regulatory system that we have. And so uh, I think it's worrisome to see one of the great advantages of the United States, going back all the way to the first country to have national parks, uh, and to be really a first mover on clean water, clean air uh, regulation, that we would have a vision of what America's future greatness is, really looking more like Russia, let's have as much gas and oil production as possible, yeah. rather than building on this strength that we have had really for decades. And, and that's not a that's not a, a liberal or democratic comment. It's uh, if you go back to uh, George H. W. Bush or or any of the many Republican uh, uh, presidents. Go back to Richard Nixon, who founded the EPA. Yeah. So the idea now that you're uh, you have rhetoric of eliminate the EPA is against uh, a, a very long bipartisan tradition that we've had in the United States. We are joined uh, in studio by Eric Ortz of the Wharton School, Victor Flatt of the University of North Carolina. We're talking about the uh, email uh, release from uh, former Oklahoma Attorney General, now uh, Administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio, B-I-Z radio, 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, Victor, I want to uh, read to you a comment by Scott Pruitt. He made this a few days ago, and, and uh, get your reaction to it. I, I have a feeling I know what it's going to be, but I still want to read it anyway. Okay. He, go, he goes, we as an agency and we as a nation can be both pro-energy and jobs and pro-environment. Uh, that's... An interesting comment to make. Uh, I don't necessarily think that 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 is the case in a lot of uh, in a lot of areas. Well, what's interesting about that comment to me is that it, it it probably, in some ways, in some levels, is becoming more true as we develop renewable energy sources. Right? Okay. We, we can't. We actually could develop energy sources. We we can do it now. It's just how much we want to want to pay for it that um, provide people with energy and help stabilize the climate and don't cause environmental harm. That is not true with our historic fossil fuel industry. And, and, and what I kind of find a galling, I guess, about that, about those remarks, is that it's sort of taking uh, a playbook from progressives who have said, you know, this idea between uh, that there's a, a, a fight between energy and environment is a false one, right? You can have both. And then using it instead of the rhetoric that historically um, Scott Pruitt has used, which is um, you're going to destroy jobs, right? EPA, right. you're destroying jobs. Um, and that's really not the case. So, so it's, a, it's an interesting comment that he made. And, uh, again, I, it could be true in some ways, but I'm not sure he means it in that way. Eric? Well, I think that that's right. Uh, we are probably not going to see a continuation of – uh, positive policies toward renewable energy. We it looks like uh, the EPA will retreat from an attempt to retreat from the Paris Agreement, or well, Trump the, the, that the Trump administration in general will retreat from uh, climate change um, uh, policies. Uh, it, it appears that Scott Pruitt's on record. I think that some of the cabinet appointment appointments hedged a bit and said, well, yeah, maybe climate science is correct, but right. it's clear that the direction is. This is not something that we want to put a priority on. It's clear. I think the footprints are really right there, and the, or I, no, I should say fingerprints on the yeah, on yeah. the of the that the fossil fuel industry is really directly controlling this. And you have 
uh, emails from uh, lobbyists who are organized that way, from uh, the Koch brothers, our, our big contributors to this, and to to uh, to to this uh, to the to this system. And I think there's no way to get out of the uh, argument that really it's the fossil fuel industry that is now driving environmental policy at the at the uh, at the national level and the. It may be good in the short term because you do take off some costs. It's right. going to be easier to frack and less expensive, and it's going to be easier to uh, do pipelines. And it's going to you're going to be uh, taking off the taking off the limits on some of the oil and maybe even uh, uh, coal uh, pr- production. Although coal is is gone anyway, and there and that's really that's not really going to come back. So the the short term, you might have yeah this big boom of uh, of energy production, and that's going to short-term uh, increase uh, stock prices for those companies and, 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 and give a boost to the economy. The problem is that long-term, that's not going to work. Uh, you're going to hit the – we're going to hit the limits that climate change scientists are telling us that we're going to hit. You're going to have uh, clean water and clean air uh, outcomes of this. That has economic effects long-term. And it's very disturbing to see uh, an EPA – that is not going to be able to take the long-term perspective. Because right. what you want is the government should be at least in some sense taking this long-term perspective rather than a short-term uh, perspective, which I believe they're in, 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 it's pretty clear you have the fingerprints there of uh, who's calling the shots. And that's disturbing. So then, then Victor, what are going to be kind of the legal recourses available to uh, environmental organizations as this kind of goes forward? Well, um, there's always the option, uh, as Professor Worth said, about suing uh, for suing the administrator, suing the EPA, in cases where they fail to undertake a non-discretionary duty. So, for instance, if they don't um, require the states to meet their national ambient air quality standards, you can sue them. Um, if they approve a permit that doesn't use the best available control technology, you can sue them. The problem with that is it, it, it's a long-term process. It's costly. Um, it's expensive. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a substitute for good regulation up front. And I, and I want to pick up on something Professor Orr said that's so true, um, I, not to criticize the business school at all, because I teach in law schools and sometimes business schools too, but in, in, business, in business schools you do tend to see a, a mentality of profit in the fairly short term. And the job of the government in this case is to think about this long term. And, and this isn't even just about uh, protecting our environment long term. It's protecting our economy long term. I mean, you know, the fossil fuel industry may get a, a brief reprieve as they're pushing um, EPA to back down on fuel economy rules, um, et, et cetera. But the demand for a lot of these fossil fuels is dropping and, and may right. continue to drop. And, and this can only prop it up for so long. Yeah, well, I guess I should say uh, I guess I should say something in defense of business schools. Although I think you, I think you're right that there is a school of thought that just says, well, short term is the way to go, and that the markets will take into account the long term. But I think you're right that that's not correct. Now, I think there is a school of thought within business schools and within many businesses. Uh, that that's not the right way to think about things. And uh, just to give you one example, Unilever uh, decided no longer to have quarterly reports. And one of the reasons was 
that they didn't want to have, be too short-term, and they thought uh, annual, point, annual reports are sufficient. And part of what motivated that was a sustainability um, vision, and I think that Unilever in particular has been a leader at the, at the level of very large companies. You also have a lot of other smaller companies who I think are going to step up, and there are ways in which businesses can be uh, more progressive on this issue. There's no mm-hmm. reason to say just because uh, the government goes one way that all the business, all businesses are going to go that way. You're going to still have uh, solar. Solar power is still the, the cost for solar power has been decreasing. Wind power, same direction. The states, as I mentioned before, are going to have a lot to say about what the mix of fuels are, so they can they can still uh, influence this process. It's not just the federal government. So I think, in fact, what you're going to see is that there's a just because the White House is uh, has been captured by. Uh, a particular interest group. That doesn't mean that other businesses can't move forward uh, and uh, uh, and be be competitive. It also doesn't mean that consumers can't take a, pers- a perspective sure. on this yeah. and uh, and also have an influence. So well, I think I think, uh, I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think that's kind of the silver lining that the ec- economics of energy is moving in the direction of renewables, and the p- consumer pressure has played a lot in that too. I mean, Google, Amazon. Facebook, Microsoft, they are adamant about establishing, you know, data centers that require a huge amount of energy using only renewable forms of energy. And and that is driving demand for wind in Iowa. It's driving demand for solar in North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, that that's, again, part of the story that, that the world is moving in one direction. So whatever the EPA does, hopefully the world can keep moving that way. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Victor. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being. Let me be here. Thank you. Eric, great to see you again. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.